I was not in the pulpit uh, the month of July. I don't know if any of you noticed that or not, um, but I am uh, exceedingly grateful for the two men that I've just mentioned, uh, our dear brothers who are local as well as far away missionaries as well, uh, but also uh, my dear brother, Moise, uh, who uh, more than capably took the first couple of weeks in July as well. Um, I love his passion, I love his heart, and his care for me. Um, uh, I'm overwhelmed often to hear him say, one of the reasons why he loves to preach is that it gives me a break. Um, and just to hear somebody say that is just, it's just so effective, and I'm grateful for that and for him. And I trust that you have, in one sense, not missed me, and you've been fed uh, under those men uh, who love the Word and who love the church, and you'll continue to tolerate me um, as we resume now in the month of August uh, our study in the Ten Commandments, which we are calling This is the Love of God, Living and Loving the Ten Commandments. And in June, we set the table for our summer series. I use that metaphor of dining, and we set the table and carefully placed three truths on the table that allowed us to set the context within the great the Bible's great and glorious timeline. We said three things about the law that I'm going to repeat because a whole month has gone by, and frankly, I forgot what the three things were. And if I have forgotten, you certainly have as well. Or if you have not, I would be phenomenally impressed. Uh, But these three truths about the law we put out on the table so that you wouldn't lose sight of them because we go off the rails very fast in handling the law when we take them out of context. And there were three very simple but very important truths, that the law is holy and righteous and good. You're a new covenant believer if by faith and repentance you've come to Jesus Christ. And so you're immediately right to ask, well, what does the Old Testament have to do with me? I'm a new covenant believer. Well, even in the Old Testament, we in the New Testament, we read from the mouth of Paul that the law is holy and righteous and good, which ought to get our attention and ought to remind us that there's something there for us. Secondly, we said that the law was never meant to save. The law was never meant to save. And there are people, maybe even in this room, but I know for a fact that there are people on Staten Island, because I've spoken with them, and as far as I know, they still live here, who think that the way you get saved is by obeying basically the law. And then you press them a little bit, and they'll they'll go to the Ten Commandments. Do you believe in God? Yes. Do you believe in heaven? Yes. Do you believe you're going to heaven? Yes. How do you know you're going to heaven? I'm a good person. How do you know you're a good person? Well, I do a decent job with the Ten Commandments. Okay, great. Name three of them. I won't turn the screw here and ask you to name three of them. Because by now you've memorized them like I asked you to do that a month and a half ago. The law was never meant to save, but instead to show sin. Next step, to lead us to Christ. That's what the function is of the law for the New Testament believer. Not to save. We highlighted that a couple of, in the the first week, where I showed you at the beginning of Exodus chapter 20, that the great act of redemption had happened. Now do this. The law is holy, righteous, and good. The law was never meant to save, but to show sin and to lead us to Christ. Third, the law must be read and applied through Jesus. 
So you don't cherry pick. You don't take out one of the commandments, put them on the refrigerator and say, go and do that. Unless you've got Jesus in that picture. Because you can't do these things apart from him. But in him, God sees you as having done them, fulfilled them, and then, J.I. Parker says, we've got rails upon which we can walk and live the Christian life. I love that metaphor. I think of it often. The Ten Commandments is just two guardrails for me, and my train just goes down those tracks. It is a gratitude program, a prescription for honoring and pleasing and glorifying God, a highway to the holy joy of obedience. Those are Packer's words. Gratitude program. I keep the Ten Commandments as a way of saying thank you for what God has already done in my life. And he continues to do to this very day. And we set the table and we begin to eat. The first commandment in the last week of June. Today, we continue with the second word. They're not called Ten Commandments in the Bible. They're called Ten Words. So the second word today is, you shall not make for yourself an idol. Now, that's not in the ESV. The ESV says, you shall not make yourself a carved image. If you're reading the old King James, it's a graven image. It's, it's all there. It's all the same. I used idol because it's going to co connect a little bit quicker than a carved image because anybody here, here sitting here this morning says, don't make for yourself a carved image. Say, okay, I don't whittle. I don't have any carved images in my home. Whew. The second commandment's a piece of cake to keep. But then you immediately think, oh, wait a minute. I've sat under this lunkhead's preaching for a little too long. I know it can't be that easy. And you'd be right. Not only am I a lunkhead, but it is not that easy to keep. Second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol. That's what the New American Standard says. That's what the NIV says. I like it. I'm grabbing it. That's your title. ESV says, do not make yourself a carved image. It's more appropriate in the immediate context, which we'll talk about in just a second. And if you recall, the very simple format we're using for each of the Ten Commandments is a two-question format. What does this commandment forbid, and then what does it require? Very simple format. You already know the format for the rest of the sermon series. I'm going to set up the main point, which is basically going to be the reading of the commandment, and then I'm going to tell you here's how we're going to approach it. Because it's always both and. Yes, it says don't make for yourself an idol, but there's a backside to that. If it's not just not doing something, then what must I do proactively in order to keep this commandment being a child of God whose life is hidden with him in Christ? You okay? We all right? We got that. Two questions, very simple. What is forbidden? What is required? Now, before I take up that question, just a real quick review. I want to remind you of the covenant context. The Ten Commandments are part of a covenant. They're the stipulations in a covenant. It's like you, the illustration I use is like you having a mortgage. You go to the mortgage company, you sit down, you sign a contract, you say, yes, I will make these payments for this, this number of years. He, the mortgage company, has the power that you don't. And so they get to determine the stipulations of the mortgage. This is how it works here. You don't come to the table with God as equals. God's the sovereign, and God tells you this is how the covenant is going to work. And he does that by giving us the Ten Commandments. And you say, yes, God, to that. So it's in a covenant context. 
a contract, if you, if you please, that's required for blessing. That's what he says. Remember, I've, I've kind of developed this mantra out of Exodus 20, verse 2 and verse 3. I am, you shall. I am the Lord your God. You shall obey. Let's not confuse the order. You confuse the order, the whole thing goes out the window. You obey, and then I'll be your God. Is legalism. It's works righteousness. It's the way most everybody, you heard me pray about culture just a few minutes ago, it's the way pretty much everybody out there believes. And the way pretty much everybody in this room, at least at once, believed. And may still do. Way, way inside. You said, no, 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 no. I got my justification by faith straight right now. It's not works righteousness. But then if I were to dig in, you know, if we were able to, like, take all your innards and go splat and say, let's see what's really going on there, there would not be one, I would go so far as to say, including myself, who doesn't some moments of some day think, hmm, I'm a little bit better positioned with you today, God, because I was a good boy. We laugh, but I'm assuming the laughing is a little uneasy because you know what I'm talking about. And those bad days, certainly God's done with me. He's lost his patience with me. It's over. Grace abounds, people. Grace abounds. I'm going to go to my grave preaching that to you so you don't get all caught up in works righteousness and legalism. God's as pleased with you today as he was yesterday and he will be that same tomorrow. You think my daughter's going to do anything this afternoon that's going to make me love her less? Nuh-uh. Think about it. Think about it. How much more so a loving and holy God. First four words outline our duties to God. Last six are duties to other image bearers. We'll talk more about that as we progress. Summary of the first word, you shall have no other gods before me. One and two are very close. In fact, many will preach the two of them together because they'll argue that they're essentially the same thing. Real close, but not quite. So I'm going to differentiate that for you, but I want to be sure you remember at least a little bit of the first word. You shall have no other gods before me. Remember we said, what does it forbid? It forbids a both-and equation. Remember we said that? It's the perverted math, is what I called it, or the devil's arithmetic. It's subtraction by addition. Meaning, you add anything to God and you subtract from him. And so we play this little match game, fill in the blank, God and blank. If there's anything in the blank, you are worshiping other gods. He says with a hard swallow. God in cash. God in comfort. God in country. All other gods. If there's anything in that blank to whom you pledge allegiance in a way comparable to this holy, unique God, you have violated the first commandment. It's incredibly sobering. And I hear the words coming out of my mouth and think, how do you not break that commandment? That's what it forbids. It forbids both-and mindset. God's not pleased with sharing his glory with anyone else. And he sent the whole prophet to say that out loud. 
my glory, Isaiah says, I will not give to another. What does it require? It requires, as you can see, on the flip side, undivided allegiance. You shall have no other gods before me, in front of me, literally my face. He is a jealous God. We're going to see that in just a minute. He's a jealous God, and he's a God who draws a line and says, mine. That's the first word. It forbids both and. It requires undivided allegiance. What about the second word, which is so close to the first word? The first word forbids divided allegiance. I want you to get this here. If the first word forbids divided allegiance, God and, the second word forbids hypocritical worship. If you're writing something down, write that down, please. That's one of the bigger lines in these notes. The first word forbids divided allegiance. Second word forbids hypocritical worship. You all know what hypocrisy is, right? Most of you would define hypocrisy to me as saying one thing and doing another. Fair enough. The word hypocrite, you've heard me explain this over the years, the word hypocrite literally comes out of the Greek theater. It literally means two faces. And in the Greek theater, to be called a hypocrite is not a slam. It's what an actor would have to do if the actor was exceedingly gifted or they were short, short on people. And so what would happen is the, the hypocrite, the Greek actor, would have two masks. They'd be wearing a mask and there'd be another mask behind them. And the one mask would be worn for a particular role. There'd be a change in scene. And the hypocrite would turn around and switch masks and now standing in front of you wearing a second mask. That's what a hypocrite is. It's a two-face. They present themselves as one thing in a certain context and then put the other mask on Monday morning when they go into the office. What the second commandment does not allow, what the second commandment forbids is hypocritical worship. In other words, you standing here and singing songs under John's direction ought not to make you think, I'm religious and super spiritual and that, that, all that, and then I can go live with another mask on this afternoon and tomorrow. That's hypocritical worship. And God will not have it. It is exchanging the truth of God for an image. It's another way of saying it, hypocritical worship. It's exchanging the truth of God for an image, for a lie. And we'll talk about that in just a second. You shall make for yourself, you shall not make for yourself, says verse 4, a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above and the earth beneath or the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. See, that's the worship language there in verse 5. You shall not bow down to them. Now, again, this is a... I don't have to worry about this, says the Staten Islander, because, well, I, I don't have any carved fish, I don't have any birds or anything like that, that I'm plopping on the mantle and then bowing down to it on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, so I, I check off the second commandment. Well, that's all right if you were in that context, because in those days, the nations had a 
pantheon of gods. And we know through the history of Israel that they regularly bent the knee to the local gods. Does the golden calf mean anything to you? Especially when Aaron says, behold, these gods were what brought you out. It ought to send a shark right up your spine. Moses has taken a little too long on the mountain. He explains, Aaron does, to Moses when he comes back down, and Moses says, what in the world are you doing? Aaron just said, well, all these gold earrings and jewelry just kind of fell off everybody, and they just went into this melting pot, and wow, all of a sudden, out comes this golden calf. That's literally how it's described. And they bow down and worship to it, and Aaron himself says, these are your gods that have rescued you. Can you imagine? Yeah, we can imagine because we do that, truth be told, in a 21st century way. Because there are gods on Staten Island, and there are gods in this country, and there are gods of the world. They're just not always as much material and up in our face the way they were in the ancient Near East. But mark this well. These words work today if you just removed carved images and fish and birds and so forth, and you replace, what do you want to put in the box? Unlike the challenge for the Israelites and the early Christians, it changed a little bit from the ancient Near East to Rome. But you remember Paul, right, in Acts chapter 17, when he's in Athens, and he's walking around, and he's appalled because he sees all of these gods, including one that has a banner that says, to the unknown god. They were just, they were just making sure they checked all the boxes. In case we missed anybody, the unknown god will worship him or her or it or that or them, they, whatever. That gets a little closer to where we live. The classic statement of this, in fact, if, if you, know, you know your Bible, and especially in Romans, you would have heard some of the language that I used. Romans chapter 1 describes this nature of idolatry that Paul was pushing against in Rome. 1.18 of Romans, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nation, nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In other words, there's something in nature that ought to cause awe and ought to cause a certain movement to want to know who made this. But where idolatry goes off the track is that it doesn't investigate. It simply takes that creation and says, I'm going to worship it. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or gave thanks to him. But here it is. Here's the nature of idolatry. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's the nature of idolatry, and that's why you heard me pray the way that I did. It's because you can be an idolater and not even know it. 
Because why? Because it darkens you. Not to the point of losing your salvation kind of thing, but it can so consume, it can be so close to you that you don't even understand what it is. They knew God, they didn't honor Him or give thanks to Him. They became futile in their thinking. Foolish hearts were darkened. They claimed to be wise, they became fool. Now here it is, Romans 1.23. And they exchanged. Idolatry is an exchange. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Idolatry is the portal to many other sins. Because idolatry typically is taking something that's good and making it ultimate. Let's be careful here. Because you hear idolatry, they go, okay, I don't have a carved image in my house that I, that I bow down to. Idolatry is insidious because it takes, oftentimes, it takes something good and makes it ultimate. My family, my bank account, my, my position, my retirement account, my politics. Put anything in that blank. Good things. You make them ultimate, you're an idolater. And God is not pleased. Idolatry is often more subtle. Our idols, our objects of worship, are often revealed. This is, the, this is, this is where the Word of God worked me over this week. Idolatry is subtle, and so you have to pray for discernment, and you have to ask somebody outside of your bubble. Ask somebody who vehemently disagrees with you what they see or hear in your life. It takes a mature person to do that because we live in echo chambers. We're only going to talk to people who are going to reinforce the things that we already believe. Talk to somebody outside and ask them what they see and hear. And, and, and take what they say, not necessarily as the gospel, but as a diagnostic tool, if you please. It's often more subtle. Idols, our objects of worship, are often revealed in our time investment. So you want to you run the diagnostic? Ask yourself, where do I spend my time? You have 168 hours a week. Every single one in this room. You have 168 hours in a week. I exhort you this week to create a little chart. I do this from time to time. 168, eight-ish hours of sleep times seven, that's 56, so 168 minus 56, I'm down 112. I've got to take care of my body, so I exercise a little bit. I've got to take a shower every once in a while, so I take a shower. I've got to eat every once in a while, so I eat every once in a while. I've got to go to work, so I've got to, I've got to do this. And, 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 then you, and then you come down, and then you get the magic number. Then you get that magic number of, of flex flexible time, where you're not commuting, you're not working, you're not in the shower, you're not eating, you're not sleeping. What do you do with that time? What do you do with that time? That will reveal what you revere. If, if you crave free time so that you can watch the Olympics, not a bad thing, but are you, are you addicted to sports? If you crave free time so you can give more energies to a cause that is near and dear to you, 
Idols are also revealed in our trials. Not only in our time investment, but in our trials. When something we love is threatened. This to me, this to me is the one that undoes me all the time. All the time. I reveal the idol of my heart when somebody pushes my button. Because you're disrupting my comfort. You're impeding upon my ego to accomplish what I want to accomplish and what I think I should have control over. Idolatry of our heart is revealed in our trials. I go to the doctor this week and I get told I've got cancer. Watch me react. I've got to tread lightly here. I understand this fully. Watch me react. Because why? Because I so value my life and I want to live my three score and ten that if I get told I've got cancer and I've only got four years to live, you're going to see what's going on on the inside of me. Yeah, there'll be appropriate emotion, but there'll also be, if I dig in far enough and I'm honest with myself, there'll also be a form of idolatry that says, this is unfair, God, I deserve to live to 80. And nowhere, nowhere does God promise you a happy ending. That will reveal an idol. Idolatry is not only revealed in our time investment and in our trials, when something we love is threatened. I, I can get myself in real big trouble here if I, if I wade off in one place, but this is when I have an opportunity to sit down with somebody and talk about it. The realm of politics has, been, has, has done more to reveal the idolatry of a human heart in recent years, in my lifetime, than almost anything else I know, including the pandemic. When people get poked over something that they love, watch what happens. And you can go an awfully long way to know where that person's heart is at. Especially if they come at you and strive to win the argument in defense because they're right. which gives license to the passion, which may or may not be in accord with Scripture. Idolatry is revealed in our time investment, in our trials, and in our trust. What do you trust? At the end of the day, what do you finally trust? I trust my wife. I trust my bank account. I trust New York Baptist Church to keep me employed. So what happens if tomorrow morning my wife doesn't wake up? And what happens, Job-like, if the next day I go bankrupt? You'll learn an awful lot about me. You'll see me mourn, rightly, I hope. But you'll also come to find out to what extent I was placing my trust in something other than God. And I go close to the bone, because that's where. I mean, it's easy for me to say, if your car breaks down, ah, that's, that's not a problem. But if your wife's taken from you, if your husband's taken from you, if your bank account, like, like, like tomorrow, you woke up and there's no money. I'm guessing there'll be a rise. 
whatever your heart clings to or relies on for ultimate security, for ultimate pleasure, whatever, wherever you place your ultimate loyalty is what one writer describes as idolatry. Whatever your heart clings to, relies on for ultimate security, for ultimate pleasure, ultimate loyalty. We would do well, and I won't take the time because it's, it's now up. We would do well to meditate upon Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 11, what I describe as Paul's theology of loss. I consider everything rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus our Lord. I, I pray that, I literally pray that for you. I literally pray that for you. That if all was taken from you, you would be able to say, give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. All of this is grounded, as I wind down here, all of this is grounded in the character of God. I mean, you look at, you look at verse 5, uh, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God is jealous. That's why he's given us this commandment. He doesn't want competition. He doesn't want you to have a divided heart. He doesn't want you to be hypocritical in your worship. He is a jealous God. The Ten Commandments are rooted in the character of God. And he's a jealous God. He will not give his glory to another. But take this as I move quickly through this. The jealousy of God includes God's zeal for you. It includes God's zeal, like that of a jealous lover for the well-being of his people. If you're married, I hope that you would hope that your spouse is jealous for you. And that if I walk down the street and say, hey, baby, I'm hoping my wife's going to stick her petite elbow right between my eyeballs and say, no, pal. Rest assured, I'd never do that. But what kind of relationship would I have? What would I think about my wife if she had no problem at all with me flirting with other women? I would want to see some jealousy. So too, God. He's jealous. He wants your worship. He doesn't want you giving your worship to another, and it's not just because he's jealous for his sake, he's jealous for you because he knows that if you're giving your worship to another, that's going to end really badly for you. Idolatry, God gave me these words, I don't mean to be cute. Idolatry is adultery. Idolatry is spiritual adultery. To take on another lover is a form of idolatry and spiritual adultery, and God will not have it. If you've got nothing else to do this afternoon, read the book of Hosea, because the entire prophet is given over to God's jealousy for his people because they've gone whoring after other gods. Not for the faint of heart. He's a jealous God who visits the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. 
A lot of people read that and say, I'm doomed because my father sinned. That's not what that is. What God is saying is if you commit, if I commit the same sins my father commits, I'm going to get God's judgment the same way my father did. And if my kid continues the same sins that I'm sinning, that my father sinned, my child's going to face the judgment of God as well. I don't bear the judgment of God because of what my father did. That's not what that says. It says that God is consistent, and if you sin the way of your forefathers, you'll be judged the same way as your forefathers were as well. Make sure you see the words. Those who hate me. Those who hate me. It's juxtaposed with the very next verse for those who love him. And notice what he does in the very next piece. By show, but, he, but, there's the but, but shows steadfast love to thousands of those who love him and keep his commandments. Notice the numbers, three and four generations compared to thousands. That's intentional. In other words, his anger is only for a moment. His chesed, his loving kindness, covenant faithfulness is forever. This is what happens to those who hate him versus those who love him. Commandment number one. We're ready for the table. The second word requires non-hypocritical worship of the one true God. Verse 6 says, to those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the one for whom this table is created. One true face directed toward the one true God in the image of Jesus, who is described in Colossians 1.15 as the firstborn of all creation. If you want to know who the Father is, you look at Jesus. Jesus is the only one that's described in the Bible as being the true image of God. Colossians 1.15 is the place to do that. Describing the supremacy of Jesus as the full and only full, perfect representation of who God is. Jesus alone is called the image. Dare I say, the idol who can properly point us to God. Nobody else can. Everybody else is a false idol. One true face, non-hypocritical, one true face directed toward the one true God in the image of Jesus, who's the firstborn of all creation. So as those who are created in the image of God, we are required to image God back to the world. You're an image. You are an idol. And your responsibility is to image God back to the world. That's what it means, in part, to be created in the image of God, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. So let us pray. Let us pray together. Psalm 86, verses 11 and 12, which sound like this. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. That's one of the banners that flies over the desk at home. Unite my heart, because I know my heart is divided. I know there's a perpetual battle, and I'm drawn every which way by all of these other alluring gods in my life. And so I pray Psalm 86.11 over and over and over again. Unite my heart to worship you. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart and I will glorify your name forever. Would you please make that your prayer? Unite my heart. Unite my divided heart. Confess to him that you're torn every which way. 
You're looking for other lovers to bring you satisfaction and loyalty and your desires. Unite my heart. One of the ways we do this is by breaking bread together as his image bearers. If you would prepare your hearts and minds. Each one of you had uh, communion elements distributed uh, to the chair that you're sitting in. Uh, if you do not have uh, the, uh, the little cup and wafer, please put your hand up and we'll be sure to get them to you. There are extras on the side walls here should you want to do that. I want to take you to the table as we conclude our time together here today. With 1 Corinthians chapter 10, this is where Paul addresses idolatry and communion, believe it or not. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 14, says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. Don't just walk away. Flee from idolatry. I speak to you as sensible people. Judge for yourself what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. Why do, what do I imply then? That food often to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Paul says to the Corinthians, I say to the Staten Islanders. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 20, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons. I don't want you to participate with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't have a foot in both worlds. Christian here, not a Christian there. You cannot participate in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? There it is. Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. See, just because you have the right to do something as a Christian does not mean you ought to do it. Christians ought to be the first to forego their rights that others might be built up. That cuts across the grain of the culture in which we live. This is my right. I have rights. People have fought and died for my rights. I'm not arguing the point but I am putting my finger on a text and it's not the only one in the scriptures that say Christians ought to be very ready to forego their rights. If it's going to mean harm to other members of the body of Christ. Not easy words. And if you're reacting to me right now, ask yourself why and see if there's an idol lurking. Shall we provoke the Lord? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. So you don't ask, do I have the right? You ask, is this helpful? You don't ask, do I have a right? You ask, does this build up? That's countercultural. Because you may have the right, but it may not build up. 
And so you forego the right. It's fascinating that Paul goes into this detail as they come to the table. What's that all about? And he crescendos this with verse 31. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. That's your bottom line. Is what I'm doing glorifying God? It's not, am I exercising my rights? It's, am I glorifying God and am I building up the body of Christ? Those are the questions that Paul put to the Corinthians when they came here, because he had a bunch of people in that church pressing their rights. No, I've got a right to do this. I've got a right to do this. I don't care what you think about that. I don't care what this means to the body of Christ. It's everywhere in our world. The church is being fractured because they want their rights more than they want the edification of the body of Christ. So a hard question gets asked when we come to the table. Must we confess idolatry? Do I want what I want more than I want the unity and the undivided nature of the body of Christ? It's soul-searching. I literally am losing sleep over these kinds of things and have for months watching this fracture in the church over things that are, frankly, worldly. On the night that he was betrayed, he was betrayed. He arranged and then sat with them, had a meal, and he broke bread. He broke it. There was one loaf. I want you to see this. This is why I keep doing this. This is you. This is us. This is, this is not a plate of crumbs. This is one loaf. The symbolism is extraordinary. This is us, one. From the one, he, he breaks it, not in the sense of destroying it, but he breaks it. And then, with the symbolism still running there, he distributes it. So now, you have this peace that you are reminded comes from the one. So I don't exist all by myself. This is not a loaf. This is part of one, of which I am a part. And he gave thanks, and he said, take this, and then he just, just fills it with meaning. He said, this is, this is my body, the body of Christ. You are, we are the body of Christ. We represent him as his image bearers, and we have his mission, not our own. His mission. 